Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17. And my interest in Acts 17 this morning is twofold. Number one, in upcoming months, we'll eventually begin a sermon series through the book of 1 Thessalonians, that five-chapter letter in the New Testament. And I've been dabbling in and doing a little bit of preparation in view of preaching that uh, eventually. And um, I've been thinking about Acts 17, 1 through 9, because there we find the birth of the church in Thessalonica that eventually receives Paul's letters that we, Paul's letters that we call 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Another reason for my interest in Acts 17 this morning is that it provides a great snapshot of gospel endeavors. Uh, it gives motivation and inspiration, I think, for our own efforts with the gospel. As Ron mentioned earlier, we are in the midst of a six-week sermon series that we're calling Next. And so we've asked and sought to answer in previous weeks, what's next for our worship as a church? Last week, what's next for our discipleship as a church? And today we're asking, what's next for our witness, our witness as a church? And so if you have a guidebook, if you're using that for your sermon notes today, that's page 29 and 30 where we ask this question and seek to answer it from Acts 17. What's next for our witness as a church? We know we are to witness. We want more and more people to hear and to know and to believe in this gospel. How are we doing? What can we do better? How does it relate to that primary goal of being all in, as we've been talking about? How does it relate to some secondary goals of us getting behind some facility renovations and expansions together? Well, we'll start with the Bible, and we'll work our way eventually from the Bible to today, to opportunities for our witness today. Acts 17, 1 through 9, there Luke writes this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul in Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, And these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Our passage moves from proclamation to salvation and opposition. And from there, we'll consider a fourth point, which we'll call opportunities. So first, proclamation in verses 1 to 3. There's a, a where and a how and a what to the Apostle Paul's proclamation. The where is a synagogue. He went to a synagogue, as was his custom. A synagogue is like a, a Jewish church, you could say. They gather weekly for Bible reading and teaching and prayer. Of course, Paul was Jewish. He was a, a former Pharisee and a teacher of the law. And so now, as a Christian, he wasn't beholden to synagogue assemblies, but he took advantage of them. The Old Testament scriptures would be assumed there, even revered and, and perused and pursued. It would be fitting for there to be discussion about the scriptures and the things of the scriptures. So Paul saw a unique opportunity for the gospel in the synagogue. He was strategic about where and how to take the gospel to people. How did he take the gospel to people? How did he proclaim? Well, we've got maybe up to six different ways of describing it. Verse 2 says it's from the scriptures that Paul worked. It's from the scriptures, not his ideas, not, not newfangled ideas, from the scriptures. And he reasoned from the scriptures. He, verse 3 was explaining and proving. Verse 3 also has the word proclaim. And as becomes clear in verse 4, he was seeking to persuade. You bundle all these words up and you get quite a picture that from the scriptures, Paul proclaimed and sought to prove. He explained and he reasoned with them. That's how he did it. Then there's a what component to all this. What? What was it that he proclaimed? What was he trying to reason, explain, and prove and proclaim from the scriptures? Verse 3, that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. And that, that Christ was specifically Jesus of Nazareth. Now think of how the Jewish hearers, uh, them especially, how they not only knew that Messiah was to come, but had a certain kind of Messiah in mind. They all agreed that Messiah was to come. They should be on the watch for the Christ. And Paul says it was Jesus who was crucified. And that would be a hang-up for those listening in a typical synagogue setting. Even Peter Back in Mark 8, you might remember that he confessed Jesus as the Christ. That was good. And then immediately Jesus talked about what kind of Christ he is. One that was going to go 
to Jerusalem and be crucified and rise on the third day. Peter missed the resurrection part. He only got hung up on the death part. And it says Peter rebuked him, rebuked him. But Jesus is the Christ, and he did die. It's actually a faulty reading of the Old Testament promises to think otherwise. And so it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and rise from the dead. Or we could think of Luke 24, where after the resurrection, remember Jesus joined those two men on their walk on the road to Emmaus. And they had thought that Jesus was the Messiah. They called themselves disciples. But then he was crucified. And they were disheartened. And so Jesus explained in Luke 24, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? As Jesus would later say to a different group of disciples in Luke 24, thus it is written in the Old Testament scriptures, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Well, that's what Paul was talking about in the synagogue in Thessalonica. From the scriptures, he proclaimed and sought to prove, he explained and reasoned that it was necessary to have a Messiah who will die in the place of sinners. There's no other way for God to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the substance of Uh, the content of our message. This is what we as Christians are witnesses of. We haven't witnessed the death or resurrection of Jesus ourselves, but people who did witness those things wrote it down, and we have come to believe it because we have read of it and heard of it, and it is true. We've come to believe it. It's not only historical and accurate, but it's It was God's plan all along. It's what the Old Testament scriptures foretold. And this is what we want others to put their trust in. This is what we want others to come to know and to believe and embrace and get behind for the rest of their lives. That Jesus died and was raised for the forgiveness of sins if we would come to believe that for ourselves. So if you're not a Christian, you might take offense that Christians want to persuade you of their position on Jesus and what you need for your soul. But don't be offended because just get in our shoes for a moment. If it's true, then it's a loving and caring thing that we want you to come to believe it as well. Yes, Christians are out to convert you. Just like fans of Apple products want you to give up Windows and buy a Mac. And just like New Mexicans want everyone in the world to try their hatch green chili. Except this matter of Jesus is of eternal significance. 
And so we seek to persuade you, to explain, to reason with you, and to do that patiently as long as you will tolerate it or welcome it. Even today, we invite you, if you're not yet a Christian, we invite you to respond like some, like many, even a great many did in Thessalonica. Secondly, we see salvation in verse 4. Salvation. Some, that is Jews in the synagogue, some of them were persuaded, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. These would be non-Jewish men and women who have come to believe in the God of the Bible as the true and only God, and they've started to even put that Jewish faith into practice somewhat, though uh, inconsistently so. They're not all in, but they would have been there for synagogue. They would have been there for the hearing of God's word and the praying of prayers. And apparently they heard Paul And a great many of them were persuaded. And not a few of the leading women, it says. This has to mean women of means. Prominent women. Wealthy women. Not unlike Lydia back in Acts chapter 16, who was a wealthy merchant specializing in purple clothes, and she gets saved. Well, here, wealthy, prominent Greek women somehow came to believe in Jesus. Presumably, apart from any context of the synagogue, they wouldn't have gone there. But somewhere else, somehow else, they heard Paul preach, and they trusted in Christ, and they too joined with Paul and Silas. So here here is the birth of a church. A church is born where there wasn't one before. Two men, Paul and Silas, enter the city with the gospel. And some Jewish folk were persuaded. A great many of Jewish practicing Greeks as well. And not a few wealthy, prominent Greek women. They all believe, they all joined in, this is the beginning of a church. And though Paul and Silas would not stay in Thessalonica long, we know that a church grew there because Paul would later write to the church. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness in hope in our Lord. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Doesn't that get you excited about 1 Thessalonians? It does me. But back to Acts 17, where it all began for the Thessalonica church. It all began uh, not without conflict. So thirdly, there's opposition in this passage. Some believed, others didn't. 
And among those who didn't believe, some greatly opposed Paul and Silas and these new Christians. And so they found rabble-rousers, you know, loiterers, troublemakers, kids on the street. And they worked them up into an angry mob, verse 5 says. And this mob went on the hunt for Paul and Silas. When they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they grabbed a man named Jason, who was likely providing hospitality for Paul and Silas during their stay in Thessalonica. Perhaps even a church was meeting in his house, this man Jason. At any rate, they drag Jason before the city authorities, and they say that Paul and Silas and Jason and the rest, they've, they've turned the world upside down, verse 6 says, which was meant to be a charge that, you know, they're causing trouble. There's turmoil everywhere they go. They're, they're causing havoc. Instead, they've provided the church for one of, those, one of those hallmark sayings that every church wishes would be said of them, that they turned the world upside down for Christ or right side up for Christ. They accuse Paul and Silas and these new Christians of nothing less than treason. Verse 7, they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Of course, this was both true and not true. Paul and Silas were preaching Jesus as the king. But they weren't lawbreakers. They weren't insurrectionists. They weren't anarchists. They weren't even preaching a king that would replace civil government in any form. But Jesus is the king, and that is threatening. So how do the authorities respond? Well, it says they were disturbed, but apparently not too disturbed, because all they do is require a fine to be paid, and then Paul and Silas can go. And so they do. And with that, Paul and Silas head down the road to another city where the same story repeats itself as it had in the previous chapters before this. You've got proclamation of the gospel, salvation of some, opposition from others. It's what we can expect still today. If we faithfully proclaim the gospel, some will believe it, Others will have nothing to do with it, and among them, some will outright hate it and be angry about it. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now the possibility or even likelihood of opposition shouldn't lead us to fear or even to flee. This gospel we hold to of a risen, ascended, reigning Savior, that, that doesn't breed retreaters. That doesn't breed play it safers. 
potential future restrictions put on churches in this country, that's possible in days ahead. Churches losing their nonprofit status and tax exemption, that, that might indeed go away someday if Mayor Pete's elected, apparently. But that shouldn't lead us to sock our money in a bank. That shouldn't, that shouldn't lead us to, to not put money into a facility to meet in. What if every generation of Christians, what if every Christian church always thought rough days are ahead, we better bunker up? We, we better put down the hatches. We, we better play it safe. Now, the gospel we hold to is a gas pedal kind of gospel. It's not so much a brake pedal kind of gospel. I want to tell you a little story about the Falls Church in Virginia. I was privileged to serve on the Council of the Gospel Coalition with the longtime pastor of Falls Church, John Yates, now retired, but for a long time he was the pastor there. And I got to hear in-person updates and even prayer requests on a story um, that was playing out in national headlines in the newspapers. You see, in 2006, the Falls Church voted to remove itself from the Episcopal Church, since that denomination continued to abandon biblical views of marriage and sexuality. While the denomination sued the Falls Church, for the rights to its facilities and its finances. And all this played out in several different courts and over several different years until it came to the Supreme Court, which denied the appeal being made by the Falls Church. That's it. That's the end. The, the good guys lost in this case. So in 2012, they were forced out of their majestic facilities. There's no other way to put it. Their oldest building is 280 years old. George Washington was a member of this church. They lost all of their buildings, $2.8 million in the bank. They even had to leave behind every pew Bible and every hymnal. That faithful church body of over 2,000 people found itself without a place to meet and no money in the bank. And so over the last six to seven years, they've remained a church and they've met where they could. They've met at times in as many as seven different locations, gymnasiums, church basements, you name it. And spiritually speaking, they have thrived. They've done well. They did not fold. They did not give up. And to a person, their members over these years, even, of course, their pastor would frequently testify about God's kindness and God's faithfulness through it all. Not despite it, through it all. And so you might think that that's actually a perfect example, a case in point, on why churches shouldn't bother with these church buildings well, just last month, the Falls Church finished construction on a $23 million new church building. 
Those are gas pedal people, folks. Amen, right? Well, let's now consider opportunities. For Paul, when he entered a city, he had the spread of the gospel on his mind. When he entered a city, he considered the various opportunities available to him in that particular place. And so as we saw in Thessalonica, he took advantage of the synagogue. But if we read on in Acts 17, we'd find Paul in Athens later on. Athens, the intellectual capital of the world at the time. And there, Paul took advantage of what was called the Areopagus, like a public forum for discussing philosophical ideas. Paul plays the man and starts philosophical, but eventually heads toward Jesus. In Acts 19, when in Ephesus, Paul rents a public hall called the Hall of Tyrannus, where he held evangelistic meetings, and no doubt that the church met there as well. But if we go back to Acts 16, there Paul finds some ladies having a meeting down by the river. He gives them the gospel. That's where Lydia, the seller of purple, came to believe. And also in Acts 16... We find Paul and Silas arrested, which gives them a new venue, a new opportunity. That's where the Philippian jailer is saved. Paul, he had a variety of opportunities. He went into a city, he considered the opportunities at hand. So what are our opportunities What are your opportunities for the gospel, and are you taking advantage of them? Now, I doubt that our best opportunities today in Albuquerque are exactly the same as the Apostle Paul's were back in first century Roman world. So we don't need to imitate his opportunities, like going to a synagogue, for one, I'm not Jewish, or Paul's other method, Finding people down by the river. I suppose you can go witnessing down the Rio Grande if you'd like, but most people are are running or riding a bike, and they probably don't want you to stop them. You probably shouldn't get arrested just so you can witness to a, a cop at the prison. We have our own opportunities. A little over a month ago, we told you about a partnership that we have now with Los Ranchos Elementary School. And dozens of you turned up to an informational meeting about how to serve and get involved and help out and be there in this public school. I know of one person in our church that is a part of a a book club, a non-Christian book club. And she'll read whatever the, the book is and relationships form, discussions happen, ideas are exchanged. The possibility of the gospel is in view. I know of several people who are currently getting together with a non-Christian friend in reading the Bible together. If you've never done anything like that, then I encourage you to start reading Dave Helm's little book called One-to-One Bible Reading. And you will be equipped and motivated to do this thing of reading the Bible with a non-Christian 
I know of some in our church that frequent the same restaurant, not because uh, it's their favorite food or the only food they like to eat, but because they're trying to establish a relationship with someone who works there. One of our members travels a good bit, and I learned that he always has a new Bible with him so that when he meets someone, maybe on a plane, and gets to talking, perhaps gets to Jesus, he gives them a nice, new, shiny Bible. Well, we can consider all these kinds of opportunities and infinitely more. We can call them the opportunities for when we scatter as a church. The church gathers, but then it scatters throughout the week in different parts of the city. Our, our lives, even through the week, of course, overlap with other Christians, yes, but each one of our lives has a unique combination of interactions with non-Christians. Did you know that there are, no doubt, some non-Christians in Albuquerque for whom you are the closest thing to Christ to them? You are their closest proximity to the gospel. They might not know that you are the only one. You might not know that you are the only one. But I guarantee that for some of us, there's someone in our lives, and we're the most likely candidate to bring them the gospel. When we scatter, we must be on the lookout for opportunities. But we also don't want to overlook that, that we witness, actually as a church, by being the church. You hear that? By being the church. And this really deserves its own sermon because it's so easily overlooked. Mark Dever wrote a book entitled, The Church, the Gospel Made Visible. You hear that? The Gospel Made Visible visible. That's what the church is. It's the embodiment of the gospel, the living out of the gospel. So us being a church that cares for one another deeply in a way that the world really doesn't experience. Being a church that just keeps meeting together. Being a church that testifies in this small way that on Sunday mornings there's a parked, there's a packed parking lot here that people drive by and perhaps one day they might scratch their heads wonder what's going on inside these doors and come on in being a faithful church and being a faithful presence in our community that alone witnesses and it testifies to people that we're we're not here just merely for morals or rules or guilt or for a social club, they might begin to see, if they get to know us a little more, there's something real here. And so we can also witness, as a church, as we gather as a church. Sunday morning, corporate worship, like we're, we're doing right now, it isn't solely for reaching the lost. And there are some churches where that indeed is the case. That is their purpose for Sunday morning. 
They're called attractional churches. They used to be called seeker-sensitive churches. And we here fundamentally disagree with churches where that we're reaching the lost is the sole driving purpose of their Sunday morning gathering. No, Sunday morning for the church is a meeting of the church in the worship of the Savior that these people have come to know and celebrate on the Lord's Day. However, non-Christians are so welcome. So welcome. We, we, we speak directly to non-Christians every week. We pray for non-Christians to come before we get here on a Sunday morning. We pray for God to work in the lives of non-Christians every single week. We're, if you're not a Christian, no, we're not designing any of this for you per se. We, 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 we're not trying to get you through the doors with explosions and, and I don't know what else they do these days. Smoke machines. But as we assemble as a church, we're so glad you're here. And we want you to observe what's going on. We want you to hear what we've come to believe. And we do, like Paul, we want to plead with you to believe. We want to persuade you that it's true. We want to explain it. And so as we ask ourselves, what's next for us Regarding witnessing, what's, what's next for our witness? We could answer that in many ways. And we have this morning. We, we want to be more thoughtful and strategic and courageous when we scatter through the week. But, but I want to stress today that we want to grow as a church in becoming a church where non-Christians are here with us more often. We want to be a church where we invite non-Christians to join us on Sunday morning more than we currently do. Perhaps non-Christians, ideally, who we're already in relationship with. Perhaps non-Christians whom we're already beginning to talk about just spiritual things, matters of faith, metaphysical things, you could say or just matters of the heart and emotion. These are the best invites for a Sunday morning worship service. In short, we want more of 1 Corinthians 14 to happen here. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24 and 25. Here Paul is addressing the Corinthian church's use of tongues. And he says that if non-Christians are present and you guys are speaking in tongues, not only will they not understand, they're going to think you're out of your mind. Now, we, we don't speak in tongues here, uh, at least publicly. Some probably do in, in their own private experience with the Lord. But, but it's still the principle still applies what Paul's addressing here. So he says with, with the presence of non-Christians in view... Well, he envisions this possibility happening in a corporate worship service. An unbeliever or outsider enters. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
This is shorthand for their conversion. He envisions an unbeliever being in a Christian worship service and sensing that it's really of God. He experiences, or she experiences, the conviction of sin. And not mentioned by Paul, but surely assumed is that the preaching of the word is heard and believed and they are saved. And before the service is done, they have joined in Christian worship in thankfulness to God for their salvation. That's in the Bible, folks. So ponder with me the unique opportunity for the gospel. There is when a non-Christian friend joins you on a Sunday morning here. Think of what they get to observe. They hear and see Christians passionately singing to God, a God that they love. And in those songs, so often the gospel is stated and celebrated. You wonder, will, will my non-Christian friend hear the gospel if I invite them? I can guarantee you they're going to hear the gospel here even before a preacher gets up to preach. It'll be in the songs we sing, in the confessions we make, in the prayers that we pray. They hear Christians pray. And they see Christians bow their head. They see expressions on faces. They, they sit and listen as people wrestle with their worries and difficulties and hopes and joys. And they do sit and listen to the teaching of the Bible. And unless they have never, ever, ever, ever seen any kind of church service, but if they've gone to a funeral, that would count. If they've seen it in a TV show or movie, that would count. So almost everyone you encounter they expect to sit and have some guy like me get up and talk from the Bible for a while. Isn't that crazy? And they don't get to interrupt. They don't get to say, yeah, but. They, just, they expect that they're just going to sit and listen while the Bible is taught. So I think this is one of our best and most underutilized opportunities for witness. Will some of the teaching go over their head? Sure, but that's why they have you. You can answer their questions after. You can point them my way if you don't know the answer. Will they think that we're strange? Sure, and most of us are. <laughs> but maybe 1 Corinthians 14 will happen. You don't know. You can't make it happen. I can't make it happen. But it does happen. Do you think that you're ill-equipped to tell them the gospel yourself? Well, if you're a Christian, number one, you're not. But number two, until you get over that, just go ahead and bring them to church. We'll get the conversation started for you. Do you have a friend with whom you've talked about vaguely spiritual things, you know, matters of faith? 
but you haven't yet covered the gospel? Or, or maybe you've talked with a friend about the gospel, but you haven't yet had the guts to actually ask them, so what about you? Well, we do that here. We'll ask them for you, and then you can follow up. Now, you might be wondering, how does all of this relate to our plans for facility renovation and expansion then? Well, this is actually where it started for um, us as elders back, I don't know, a couple of years ago. You know how in your home... Um, there's something out of place, there's something sort of quirky, a flaw, and you're so used to it, you don't even notice it, but when other people come over, they, they spot it. No, you don't know that. That's the point. So let me reverse it. Uh, you know how when you go into your neighbor's house and it always smells like weird soup, <laughs> but you know your neighbor doesn't think it smells like weird soup, it smells like their house to them. Well, from time to time, we get some fresh meat around here. We hire some new staff that haven't been around here before, and, and they see some things with some new eyes, and we're actually helped by that. So enter Trent Hunter back several years ago, who was on staff here. He noticed really astutely that this room, in the way it's laid out with its seats, is not very conducive to people finding empty seats. And so maybe you've experienced this before. So you come in the back, and that place looks packed. But I'm standing here, and I can tell you that's not packed because there are all these empty seats. But here's what I see sometimes, and Drew probably sees it more during the singing. People in the back, walking around, walking around, walking around, and all they see are backs and not empty seats. And so Trent began visiting with one of our members who's an architect and began thinking of other ways that this could be laid out. Or enter Asher Griffin, who took over on staff when Trent left to pastor in South Carolina. Asher said to me one day when we were chatting just about hospitality here in the building, he said, well, you do realize that the crowdedness of the foyer, especially between first and second service, it's, it's actually not hospitable to visitors. I thought, well, it's crowded. That means it's good. It's a lot of people. It's warm. But then I tried to actually experience it from a visitor's point of view and you can't actually get to coffee. You can't go get your cookie if you wanted it. People are in the way. It's hard to maneuver through there. In fact, take out your, your guidebook if you have it with you. Look at page 12. There's a perfect example. How are you going to walk through that scene that you find there on page 12? Well, turn the page over then. A closed-in courtyard with expanded foyer space will provide not only a more welcoming environment for our guests, which we want, but also a space during the week for people to meet up, for you to meet up with your non-Christian friend to do that one-on-one -on -one Bible reading thing I was just talking about, a place where you can sit down at a table, get some coffee, and also show them this other book that is related to a topic you came up on in your discussion. 
Well, these plans for more space and more usable space here are not mere creature comforts. They serve the gospel. It's about the gospel spreading. Buildings don't save anyone. More space doesn't mean more salvations. But people have to get to the gospel. And there's a good opportunity to bring them actually in this building for getting the gospel. It's not the only place by any means. But it's a decent place. And we think it's worth our investment. It's my prayer in days ahead that God would increasingly use these people, this man as myself, and use our corporate worship of our church. Not only for his own glory and for our good, but also as a witness that some might be with us and God might move on them and they might say, God is in this place. They might believe the gospel and join us in heartfelt worship.